This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. I'm joined today by Violet Muller. She is a historian and writer based in Oxford, England. She received her PhD in intellectual history from Edinburgh University, where she wrote her dissertation on the library of a 16th century scholar. She's the author or co-author of three reference books for the publishing arm of Bodleian Library. The Map of Knowledge, which is the book we're discussing today, is her first narrative history. The full title is The Map of Knowledge, A Thousand-Year History of How Classical Ideas Were Lost and Found. Violet, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. So this is a history of the, as you, you, your subtitle uh, talks about the tracing of a thousand years, and this is uh, truly a grand narrative where you trace how ancient texts were preserved and sometimes lost in their migration uh, through the ancient world into the medieval world and eventually into what we think of as the modern world. So um, I, normally I begin these uh, interviews where I ask what, what motivated you to write the book, but I'm going to uh, be so presumptuous as to tell you why I think you wrote the book, because it's one of the reasons I wanted to read it, which is I couldn't find a single narrative history about how ancient texts survived. And this uh, certainly uh, promises to be that. So is that the reason you wrote it? Yes, it is. So when I studied history, I, I, my first degree was classics and combined with medieval history. So I kind of had both sides of the story. But th- there seemed to me to be a big disconnect um, in the general narrative, as you say, you know, that it's very much um, in the Western tradition, we're taught that, you know, there were the Greeks and there were the Romans and, and then it was the Renaissance. And I felt that when it came to intellectual history, there was just a huge gap of, um, you know, where did these ideas go in that thousand year period um, between the Romans and the Renaissance? So that's absolutely what motivated me. Yes. And so in order to have this discussion, there's a, a great many texts that are available in different what we could call genres of inquiry or areas of inquiry and knowledge. Uh, but you concentrate on three particular ancient writers. So discuss those particular writers and how, why they're important to you. Um, yes. So I became very interested in science, um, the history of science when I was doing my thesis. And so I decided I wanted to focus on um, scientific subjects rather than, you know, literature or um, philosophy or all the other um, possibilities. And when I started looking at ancient science, it seemed um, very clear immediately that there were three major areas of investigation 
investigation and they were uh, mathematics, astronomy and medicine. So within those three subjects, I then looked um, at which um, writers I could focus on and, and more importantly, which texts, because this is a, an enormous story. And, and I realised quite early on in my research that if I didn't choose and, and choose things to follow and be quite um, religious about or, or strict about following them, I would just get lost. And so would the reader in this enormous kind of um, in this enormous story. So in mathematics, um, that there is an obvious text which is written by Euclid, um, which is called the Elements, which is the sort of it's the it's the the the, the the foundation text of mathematics, basically, and still is today, remains um, as important now as it was when it was written in um, 300 BC. So, so that was obvious. Uh, and then um, I looked at astronomy, and there was a, a similar book written by um, Ptolemy called the Almagest, which was did the same kind of thing. It was actually based on the elements, was very inspired by the elements. The structure was the same in many ways. Um, and also Ptolemy used Euclidean geometry in order to, um, uh, you know, for his, for his cosmological uh, ideas. So that was obvious. And then when it came to medicine, it was a bit more complicated um, because the, the most prolific writer of antiquity um, in medicine and actually in general was a man called Galen. And um, he didn't write one convenient big, um, you know, sort of summation like Euclid and Ptolemy did. So um, he, he wrote, I mean, hundreds of treatises. They're still turning up. In, in you know libraries ones that we haven't heard of so um, I focused on his texts that were used as part of the medical education so the sort of the, the more basic ones particularly those on anatomy and also some of the ones on um, pharmacology medicines um, so that was that was basically my sort of how I decided what to focus on. And then I very much stuck with the, those three men through the journey, you know, on the journey through the Middle Ages. And so before we uh, begin talking about the particulars <clears throat> of the journey, as you describe it, it's, it was striking to me, of course. And um, I, I knew beforehand how much, or I had a sense of how much had been lost from the ancient world. But really, it seems that uh, this is truly just the tip of a large ancient iceberg that survives. Um, and so can you uh, talk about uh, how much we don't know about uh, the ancient world in terms of uh, the books or texts that were produced? Yes, I mean, uh, we do, you know, we know some of the things that were lost, but obviously there must have been a lot of books written that we, 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 you know, there's no reference to. So we have no idea that they ever existed. But interestingly, in science, there's quite a high um, survival rate. It's higher in science than in other subjects. Um, but it's a complicated picture because so if I take um, if you take the elements as an example, the elements was it wasn't new mathematics. The elements was Euclid sitting down in the library of Alexandria and looking at all the available mathematical texts and ideas that had been produced in the preceding 2000 years by the Egyptians and the Babylonians and, and the Greeks. And um, he then sort of collated it and put it and, and produced it in this beautiful, lucid masterpiece but what that meant was that nobody bothered uh, recopying the texts that he based the elements on anymore because why would they bother they had the elements which had it all there so so um clearly let, set, set out so he had the effect of actually 
ensuring that the text that went before didn't survive, which I think is quite an interesting sort of uh, perhaps unexpected result of writing a very successful book in the ancient world was that then, you you know, um, and, and it, I think it was a similar story for, um, for medicine and also for astronomy. So, so ironically, you're starting this story seemingly at the beginning because yeah. we're thinking of the ancient authors. But in fact, there's a hidden history that we may never know, probably will never know, because there's, in other words, the, Euclid and others were beginning in the middle of a longer story that had already predated them. Yes, absolutely. And and you could sort of see Euclid as a kind of... a seminal moment in the much much longer history of mathematics um and of course he you know he he continued the ideas that had come from before but but the actual texts themselves were not um were not reproduced so yeah i think it's very interesting uh it's almost a bit of a dichotomy that um you know that it, his book was so important, and it his book it, in many ways ensured the survival of these ideas. But at the same time, it ensured that the text it was based on didn't survive. Um, and and so it's notable. I, I was really struck by the fact this I did not know before about Galen uh, that you suggested roughly there are six, six million words surviving from the ancient world, and three million of them are Galen. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's. I think it's. I think it's more than that, but I, I, I'm not sure if that's the exact figure. I, I can't remember if that's the exact figure. But yes, I think roughly half of the words that survive from the ancient world are written by Galen. Um, he, he, he was not a, not a man who was shy of um, telling people his opinions. He, he, he was, yeah, I, I can imagine if you met him, he would be the, the, the ultimate mansplainer. He would just sit and talk and talk and talk. You wouldn't be able to get a word in edgeways. Um, and so, and that's notable is, is, Presumably the reason the scientific works, the mathematical works survive is because they were deemed useful by future generations. Um, perhaps the more artistic works like the works of Aeschylus and Sophocles were deemed perhaps uh, more optional, uh, entertaining, but nevertheless not essential. Is this part of the reason that science, the scientific and mathematic works are uh, surviving in greater proportion? Yeah, I think possibly. Um, yes, I think so. I mean, I, I'm just going to have a quick look to check the numbers, but there are some really interesting statistics for the numbers of plays that survive. The Right. You mentioned Aeschylus, only seven out of 80 that's, known that's Aeschylus right. plays survive, yeah. and Sophocles, <clears throat> only seven out of 120, and exactly. Euripides, 18 out of 92. And so... That's an incredible attrition rate. Uh, it, so it, yeah. It, and as you mentioned, there was a medieval or early, uh, late antiquity uh, chronicler who uh, kind of came up with his own Bartlett's quotations, effectively, and uh, only a small fraction of the quotations are from actual known surviving work. So it's really incredible right. the attrition rate. Yeah, it is. It is. But I think that's a feature of um, and that demonstrates how expensive and difficult it was to reproduce books before the age of printing, because every single one had to be copied by hand. And that is was an extremely um, you know, time consuming and expensive process. Um, and so that's I do want you to talk a bit about that before we get to the actual tracing of this history. Um, books or texts, as we would call them today, are. Uh, these these are all handwritten. We don't have a printing press in the West until the 15th century. And so mm -hmm. you've got everything that's really written by a scribe. 
who is somebody who is handwriting this. And can you talk about some of the materials like the ink and the uh, quote unquote paper or the material on which this is preserved? Yeah, sure. So um, Euclid, Ptolemy and Galen would have all written on papyrus scrolls. Um, Papyrus um, is a a type of reed which grows in the Nile Delta. And that was the primary writing material in in the ancient world. Some other cultures who couldn't access uh, papyrus would use um, bark or um, animal skins, which um, became more and more popular. um, And the processes for producing what's called parchment which is um, animal skins that have been soaked in lime and then they scrape off all the flesh and um, sort of stretch them and rub the um, skin so it becomes really thin and suitable and smooth and suitable for writing on. Um, and parchment became increasingly popular uh, and, uh, you know, w- but it was always expensive to produce, of course, because you you know you need um, uh, skins of animals, and and then bits of it would be unusable because they would be holes or they would be took, it would tear, um, and also the process of producing it was quite um, long and complex. Um, but once um, sort of around sort of three, four, five hundred. Um, the book, as we now know it, started to come into being. It was called a codex, and it was basically parchment leaves which were glued together on one side, and then there were wooden boards as the covers. And um, they became they, they began to gradually um, replace scrolls because scrolls are very fragile things, and you can imagine you have to roll up a scroll, roll it constantly to read it so that um wear and tear made them even more fragile um so gradually the codex written on um, parchment animal skins begins to take over and it was particularly taken up by christianity by christian writers um and so that became more popular and they uh, that kind of book is much more durable i mean parchment you know that there's some really extraordinary examples of particularly religious books and bibles which have survived from um you know the the third fourth centuries really really beautiful books um and then in um in the seventh century the arabs got hold of um that they had a battle against the chinese and they uh, the, so the story goes they took some uh, chinese soldiers prisoner and these chinese soldiers told them how to taught them how to make paper using um um rags and cotton material and and other you know uh wood and that kind of thing um fibrous um plants and they taught them how to make paper and and the arabs then took on this um technology and once paper started to be being produced then that was cheaper to produce than parchment and that um it did have quite an important effect on the number of books being produced um and and then i think ink certainly in baghdad in the seventh and eighth centuries the um quality of ink and glue was was very much improved um, and it made books um, you know easier to produce and more durable and um, which again would have had an effect on the cost of them made them slightly cheaper and more accessible and that kind of thing but these are things that uh, so they've got to be copied over and over because they're going to disintegrate over time and through usage and so uh, for example if you start in the third uh, century BC with Euclid uh, putting, excuse me, putting something down onto papyrus. Um, how many times, in all likelihood, would that 
original work have to be recopied and reproduced uh, in order to survive into, say, uh, Alexandria, uh, Egypt over the next few hundred years? Well, I think if you're if you're very very lucky, a papyrus scroll would have lasted maybe two hundred years um, before it absolutely needed to be recopied. Um, I mean, parchment obviously, you know, it can survive much longer, but the books, you know, they had to be recopied. They had, and also there had to be more than one copy of them because if you know if there's only one copy in the Library of Alexandria, and then it happened to be in you know the the warehouse that Julius Caesar set fire to um, when he attacked the city in the first century, then it's lost, it's gone. So I think that was one of the really sort of compelling things about this story is that, um, you know, sometimes there would have probably probably have only been a handful of copies of these texts. And, and, you know, that's just such a fragile, um, you know, they could have been so easily lost, all of them. Um, But yes, the recopying is, is absolutely vital and every time you recopy something you've obviously got to decide am I going to recopy this book or that book am I going to put my money into this subject or um so it's always a process of selection and 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 I suppose that's how some things disappear and get lost and other things are you know carried on so you start your account in Alexandria Egypt and um explain why that's an important location and the point to begin at Well, Alexandria was the most important intellectual centre in the ancient world for centuries. And um, it was founded by Alexander the Great. uh, And then when he died, his uh, general, Ptolemy, uh, took uh, took over the whole province of Egypt. And Ptolemy was, uh, you know, Macedonian. He wasn't wasn't royal or particularly grand. And he decided um, that in order to found his dynasty properly and to really um, build up the prestige that he needed because he didn't have it by birth, he was going to make this city into the absolute um, centre of knowledge. And he did this in various ways. He founded the library and initiated a really aggressive policy of book collection. Um, You know, he would search ships um, have sit- ships that were passing through the port searched, and if there were books on board, they would literally just help themselves and take them. They even had a special shelf mark in the library, which was from the ships. So um, he was pretty unscrupulous, I think, but um, but you know he was just really determined, and he also um, tempted scholars to come. And Euclid was probably one of these scholars. Um, we think that Euclid was probably studying maths at the academy in Athens and that, um, you know, he was tempted to come to uh, Alexandria, but, you know, by um, King Ptolemy, who said, you know, come, I've got this amazing library, there's all these other scholars, there's this great atmosphere. And this was really successful, you know, Alexandria, um, from that point on, Alexandria was the place to be in the ancient world if you were um, well, in the Western ancient world, if you were a scholar and you were interested in learning um, and you could come and share your ideas and, you know, have access to lots and lots of texts. And and I think, you know, nowadays, it, sometimes it's hard to imagine just exactly how extraordinary that was in, um, you know, in the uh, third century BC. Nowadays, there's so many places on earth. I mean, you know, you just have to go on your computer on Amazon, you can access hundreds of texts, you can go to libraries, you can, you know, there's universities everywhere you look. And in the ancient world, you know, Alexandria was really 
the the only place that had that kind of level of learning on offer. So he was very successful, Ptolemy, and it continued in that way until, I mean, really in the fifth century. So for eight hundred years, um, it was the 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 top of the um, intellectual tree, which is a great achievement. And so, what marks its decline? Well, um, by the fifth century, the Roman Empire had begun to um, sort of change, and um, I, 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 I don't want to say decline, but in the West, you know, it declined, and Constantinople had become the great um, sort of major city of the Roman Empire, and Alexandria just um, it began to decline. The decline of the library had had already begun. Um, years before uh, the city had become Christian and of course many of the um, texts in the library were um, were actually housed in a secondary library called the Serapeum which was another temple because in the ancient world books were almost were often kept in temples and um, the Christians um, that were rising to power in Alexandria um, in the early 5th century um, saw these texts as being a fundamental part of um, paganism which they needed to stamp out so this uh, the Serapeum was destroyed and the text within it um, by a mob of Christians so the decline had been uh, you know it's been very gradual um, but um, yeah but quite inevitable and then the city was conquered by the Arabs a couple of hundred years later but they had their own they had to, they founded their own cities and, and intellectual centers elsewhere so Alexandria just um, um, declined but I suppose it's inevitable isn't it I mean it's, places always rise and fall again and well that, that's you know that brings up a point your, your reluctance to embrace the word decline versus change uh, I think gives a hint of there's an ongoing debate isn't there among uh, scholars of the <clears throat> ancient world regarding uh, the Roman Empire in the West in particular, as to whether it was a decline or simply an adaptation to changing conditions. Um, is, is that part of your reluctance to embrace that word? Yes, I think I think it, it, it's a bit of a simplification um, to say that it was just um, a decline. Um, and you know, it goes right back to Edward Gibbon, um, you know, this how we see the process that happened over those centuries. And I, I just think it's a much more complicated and nuanced picture than just saying, oh, well, the Roman Empire disappeared and, you know, because it didn't. Um, and it's certainly not in the East um, where it um, sort of survived and changed. And um, so, yeah. But that, <clears throat> but the infrastructure certainly does decline. I mean, it really does uh, disintegrate in some ways. There's um, uh, some uh, scholarship by... Um, uh, Brian Ward Perkins, I believe, who came out with a book a little over a decade ago where he traces the uh, changes in everyday life uh, before and after the uh, Western Empire. And, and you see things like the average weight of cattle declines uh, precipitously. Certainly we have um, uh, changes in everyday life that show a diminishment and a decline in standard of living. And it seems to me this is... Uh, your account here in many ways reflects uh, the experience of the Western Mediterranean um, at the demise of the empire and how knowledge is, and this is a point you make yourself, which is the preservation protection of knowledge is really greatly dependent upon political stability. And certainly by 
the end of the empire, there is anything but stability. And so can you talk about uh, how stability is important and what role it plays in the different um, areas that you cover? You start with Alexander and you go on to some other areas, of course, but um, political stability as a general concept and the role it plays. Yeah, so political stability is, is, is absolutely vital on so many levels. So just on the first basic level of the fact that books are extremely fragile items. And if you have, um, you know, uh, armies marching into your city and setting fire to the libraries, then obviously the books are going to be lost. But also on um, uh, um, uh, the level of um Funding, you know, scholarship needs to be funded. It's a long-term project, and if you are living in a in a state where the government, where there's no sort of strong government, and there's warring factions, and there there just isn't the the available capital or the available long-term um, view, long-term, you know, ability to sort of plan long-term, which allows scholarship to flourish. So um, political stability is is it is absolutely fundamental and you see time and again in 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 my book each city that i visit each new chapter you know it has its heyday and then something goes wrong um in 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 terms of the you know the 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 city's invaded or perhaps a much more um conservative um anti uh you know, uh, more religious, perhaps more religious uh, faction comes into power, and then um, the whole uh, intellectual project is, is comes under threat. And often, the scholars will flee with their books and um, go somewhere else where the the conditions are better. So, the role of Christianity <laughs> in particular um, seems to be a double edged sword. Uh, on the one hand, there is this iconoclasm and a rejection of the so called pagan world. Um, but at the same time, there is this desire on the part of people like uh, St. Benedict to preserve uh, some of the elements of that pagan world. So can you explain this dichotomy? Yes, um, it's, yeah, a Christianity. Uh, very, very complicated relationship with um with especially with science I think um, and, and that continues I think right to this day. Um, so in the early years um, in after the um you know the should we say the decline of the roman empire um and you know christianity increased in in power and christianity in, in many areas the christian church kind of took over from the roman state and um there there are various incidences like the one i told you about uh, about the um with the serapeum in alexandria where christian um christians were actually responsible for directly destroying pagan texts because um, of the fact that they were pagan. But then, of course, um, there were also places like um, the monastery um, uh, Cassiodorus, who was a, a, a scholar in Italy in um, the 5th century and who was responsible for uh, um, preserving at least some texts, scientific texts in, in Italy. Um, and he, he was really, him and Boethius, there were really just the two of them um, who were trying to hang on to some of this knowledge. And he founded a monastery um, down on the very south coast of Italy, where he, um, you know, kept these texts and as part of the, the sort of uh, classical education system. And so he, you know, got, um, had scribes copying them, and he also had quite a lot of texts in Greek. So, 
it, it is a double-edged sword because also as time went by, really the only place in the fifth and sixth centuries in, in the West, the only place where you could learn to read and write was um, in a monastery or in a, in a religious institution. So on the one hand, Christianity was responsible for the loss of quite a lot of um, ancient ideas and texts. But on the other hand, it was responsible for the survival of literary culture and writing. And um, so, as you say, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. It's, a, it, it's, not a simple, um, it's not a simple black and white story at all. But let's move a little further east. Um, as Christianity begins to dominate uh, the Roman Empire, both in the West and in the East, uh, there is a degree of intolerance for certain kinds of ideas, and some scholars feel pressured to leave uh, and they migrate. And so, talk about that. To, to me, that uh, that was the area where I was uh, personally most ignorant about. I knew that the Muslim world in the eighth and ninth centuries was a, uh, a preserve of Western knowledge, but I didn't really understand until reading your book, how this process occurred. So if you could explain that key transition geographically. Yeah. So the first part of the transition was that um, uh, already by the um, third, fourth and fourth centuries, um, there were a lot of other libraries in um, what is now Turkey and Syria and um, that part of the Middle East. So already books, you know, Euclid's Elements and, and Ptolemy's Almagest and books like that would have already been in libraries in and also in Constantinople, of course, Um so that that knowledge was was had already been taken sort of from Alexandria, if you like, and out across the Eastern Mediterranean world and into the Middle East. And there were scholars um, uh, who continued studying those those scientific texts and um, and recopying them and sort of keeping this little tiny flame, these tiny flames alive. And many of these scholars were associated with um, uh, the Nestorian Church, which was a very early um, Christian church in. Um, in you know uh, Syria and modern, modern day um, Middle East, and um, so they that that was a very important stage. And I didn't make that wasn't a chapter in my book. And I actually did have a discussion with a with a very erudite scholar the other day, and he said, you know, really you should have that should have been a, a, an extra chapter in your book. So um, so that was a very important stage in the transmission because of course when the Arabs um, conquered a lot of that area in um, the um, 7th century and founded Baghdad, um, they that was where they went. They, they, they would travel off into um, Syria and, and that part of the Middle East and then also up into Anatolia, which is now Turkey. Uh, and they also would uh, wrote to the emperors in Constantinople and ask them for scientific books. Um, and they were sent, you know, copies of Euclid's Elements and, and that kind of thing. So... That, that, that was very important. Those books already were there, and that was where the Arabs then accessed them once they started to realise what was on offer in terms of ancient scientific ideas. And in Baghdad in the 8th and 9th centuries, there was this enormous programme of textile acquisition and scholars set off you know, on these incredible journeys into the mountains to find old temples um, and to, you know, to find scholars who'd maybe been handing, them, handing these books down from generation to generation and sort of keeping them hidden in their houses. Um, and um, they brought them back to Baghdad. And then there was this 
this um, enormous program of translation. Um, many of the books had already been translated into Syriac, which was the language of the um, Christians in that part of the world, the Nestorian church. And um, they were then translated into Arabic. And of course, there was also a tradition of um, Persian, ancient Persian scholarship, which was already present in the area around Baghdad when um, the Arabs arrived, and they mined that tradition as well. They were really extraordinarily good at um, sort of taking ideas from wherever. And, um, the, uh, you know, they also took ideas from uh, China, the like paper, as I've already mentioned, but also from India, mathematical ideas and um, ideas about astronomy. Um, so the 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 scholars who um, assembled in Baghdad in those two centuries, and many of them were Persians. They weren't actually um, ethnically Arabs, but they it's called Arabic science because they all wrote in Arabic. Um, but they um, just did this amazing job of um, gathering all these um, important scientific ideas and kind of synthesizing them and going through the text, producing really good translations of them, um, and and then also you know producing their own ideas. I mean the the yeah, the the achievement of Arabic science in Baghdad in those centuries is is really absolutely astounding and it's something that I really wasn't aware of when I started researching the book and it became one of you know if there's one thing that I would hope that re readers of um, my book take away is just exactly how extraordinary these men were and and what they um, achieved and what they you know we, we've inherited a lot of their ideas uh, um so that was very exciting to discover all that. And so, uh, again, to return to one of these themes that you have about political stability, this thriving of uh, this, and this is really centered in what is modern Baghdad. Yeah. And so the this focal point where there's this um, drawing in of ideas and knowledge uh, from all the different parts of the then known world is really catalyzed, it seems, through this political stability and the creation of an empire within this area. This is the Abbasid Empire under the uh, inheritors and successors to Muhammad. And so this is really, again, akin to um, the, the Ptolemaic system where you've got an imperial system under after succeeding Alexander the Great. You've also got a strong system, uh, imperial system in, in Baghdad. Um, and so, uh, I, for example, I was really struck by the fact that one of the caliphs, I believe it was Al-Rashid, who essentially gives his tutor, his lifelong tutor, carte blanche to uh, use the imperial funds to collect what or what the use to which this tutor puts it is essentially a collection of books. Yeah. And I would say when you asked me earlier about political stability, one, one of the other really, really vital factors for um, any kind of uh, scholarship to flourish is that there has to be people in power who are interested and who are and and. The, there were two or three of those caliphs who really were absolutely passionate about science themselves. It wasn't just, they weren't just doing it to, you know, I mean, obviously it was very helpful for them to have all these ideas to help run their empires and improve the logistics. And, you know, there was a lot of practical applications, but they actually were personally just really, really, you know, they were scholars in their own right and they were very interested in these things. And of course, um, they created a fashion, and in Baghdad, in the in the ninth century, if you were a wealthy um, lord and you didn't have a library and you didn't have a you know room full of your own scholars and your own scribes producing um, manuscripts for you, then I mean you were no one. You couldn't hold your head up at a, 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 a dinner parties and stuff. 
And I think that's so fascinating how, you know, something becomes a trend like that. And suddenly, you know, it, it, it just causes it just causes an explosion in in um, the production of knowledge because these incredibly wealthy people uh, were families were you know pouring money into this endeavor and translators were paid really really well they were sort of the premier um, well how can I put it so it relates to an American audience the um the, the baseball the you know the top baseball players of the day you know they were getting paid an absolute fortune um and uh, it just had such uh, uh, positive consequences for what they were able to achieve and discover well, today we would call this kind of an amassing of social capital, right? Exactly. <laughs> Where yeah, exactly. You, you have this. I mean, and, and really, this is very familiar. This strikes us. Much of the ancient world, of course, you know, from Homer onward, sound, you know, these people in some ways are very uh, readily understood by the modern sensibility uh, of, in terms of social uh, and distinction and We've all seen libraries where these wonderfully bound volumes look like they've never, you pull them down from the shelf. Yeah, they've never been read. They've never been read. Uh, But nevertheless, they they carry a sense of interest, uh, reputation, uh, can be enhanced through the possession of them, et cetera. And so I I was really struck by what a true center of learning. On the one hand, yes, there are these reputational effects, but also the preservation of knowledge by is incidentally maintained because you've got all of these um, private libraries, but also you have public libraries. Uh, You noted at one point when the Mongols invade in the 13th century, invade Baghdad in the 13th century, there are apparently 36 public libraries, many of which are destroyed, I gather. But nevertheless, uh, that is notable in and of itself, 36 public libraries in an ancient uh, city. Um, But at the same time, you've got all these private libraries, which presumably some of them survived better than the public ones. And so uh, there's this incidental survival rate from these private libraries that is really important for these texts, many of which would disappear once the libraries burned. Yes. And I think also, um, you know, that was just Baghdad. But of course, by then, um, the, you know, the, the book culture in the Arabic world was enormous. I mean, it was really, um, it, it was an extremely lucrative. Um, and of course, uh, book agents were selling books and transporting books all over the Islamic empire. So, um, you know, there, there, there were great libraries in countless other cities as well Baghdad sort of set the tone but you know before long uh, you know as the empire began to break up and the you know most provinces had their own sort of ruling families they all wanted to be like um, the Abbasids and they all wanted that so, so it's had this incredible ripple effect not just within Baghdad but also right the way out to you know as far as Cordoba in Spain which is my next chapter where the uh, Omayyads um, you know they founded the most uh, incredible libraries as well and again Again, there was private libraries and um, this this sort of whole atmosphere of uh, studying and discovering and trying to really uh, to push the boundaries of knowledge, um, which I think, yeah, I just think it sounds it just sounds like a really great period to live through. And so you have this uh, importance of uh, military um, rulers who are interested in this. But at the same time, I want you to talk about the uh, problem of what I would call the problem of translation. And even today, of course, if you if somebody publishes a novel in French and then it's translated into English, 
here in the U.S., the, there's sometimes discussions about uh, the faithfulness to the translation and whether the translator and in some ways is a second author. Um, and I would imagine that these problems are squared in uh, the translation of works uh, in the ancient uh, world, from the ancient world into the medieval world. So um, you, for example, you talk about uh, in the 11th century, there's a um, translator named Constantine the African. Mm-hmm. Um, who translate a lot of Galen, the ancient uh, um, physician, prolific physician, author. And uh, there's some concern there about, you know, how faithful he is to the original, because in many ways he, he's got different purposes for his translation. So Constantine wants to use practical teaching text. So can you explain, you know, how much of a problem it is for us to understand the ancients via the translators? Yeah, I think um, I think the first thing to say is that it slightly depends on the text. I think um, a text like Euclid's Elements, which is um, you know, it begins by setting out his the, the vocabulary that he's going to use, and the voc- vocabulary is is limited. It's very scientific, and um, it it. it the concepts are so literally the first line of the elements is, uh, you know, a, he describes what he means when he says a point. A point is, is 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 something which has no part, and then he describes what he means when he says a line. So I think with a text like that, the the translation, um, so long as the translation is good, it's not so much an issue. Also, there are diagrams which are absolutely fundamental. So as long as you have a faithful translation and you have the diagrams with Euclid's elements, it's 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 quite a simple translation. There aren't loads of words. There aren't loads of possible ways of interpreting the meaning because it is so clearly set out with this technical vocabulary. But when it comes to Galen, it's different, of course, because he's writing about medicine and he's using an enormous vocabulary. And as I said, he's incredibly wordy. Anyway, he doesn't. He's not a man to you know use two words. Uh, you know, you he, if he can use ten words instead of two, he will. Um, he loves the sound of his own voice. So it was definitely more of a problem with works like that. And I think even more so in philosophy, texts of philosophy, I think even more so because where the meaning is perhaps obscured or complicated and, you know, even a mistranslation of one word can completely change the meaning. I think then that that was very difficult. Um <clears throat> And of course, if you have a text that's been translated from Greek to Syriac to Arabic to Latin, you know, that's a lot of different minds and different languages it's gone through. It's a bit like Chinese whispers. You know, you're probably going to end up with something at the end, which is quite different from what um, from the beginning. But from um, from early on. So there was a translator in Baghdad called Hunayn ibn Ishaq, and he was really the sort of set the standards for translation, for scientific translation. And he actually translated a lot of Galen. And he um, was very, very rigorous. And one of the things that he instituted was that you had to go out and find as many copies of the text as you could. It wasn't enough to just have one manuscript and translate it. You had to really produce um, a proper um, collated version of the manuscript and then translate it. So he introduced much higher standards for transla- translation. Um, but then when it came to Constantine the African, that it, it is an interesting question because he actually translated a lot of the works which Hunayn had written based on Galen. So this whole idea of it being a very faithful translation, it was already quite often, um, you know, or, or perhaps 
often if it was a very big book, then um, the translator would sort of produce almost like a Reader's Digest version of it, a clearer, more concise, more easy to use version. And then, you know, then that would be retranslated. And I think the problem came for Constantine the African. The problem was that he often didn't even attribute the authorship. So he made it almost sound like he had written the text, which, of course, he hadn't because he was, you know, he was taking it from an Arabic text and then, you know, changing it around and making it his own a bit. But it was based on somebody else's words. And I think that's where the problem comes in. But the the thing is that in the ancient world, the whole idea of... Um, copying someone it didn't have the same negative connotations that it has today you know if you think of a lot of roman literature you know the aeneid is basically the odyssey it's just the roman version so i think they had different ideas of um about copying and, and about sort of copy i suppose copyright copyright didn't exist um but Constantine the African was definitely um, accused, has been accused by modern scholars of plagiarism. And I think partly he was trying to, as you said, adapt his texts for uh, for teaching and also for a European audience. And I think if we take one example, he translated a book which Hunayn had written, which was based on Galen, and he renamed it and he gave it a Greek name. And I think the reason he did that was because he was trying to highlight the link with the ancient Greeks. But of course, that was at the expense of Hunayn and the Arabic tradition. And that was very much the beginning of the sort of editing out of the Arabic contribution, which continued in the Renaissance. And, and you know, in the Renaissance, the, the whole sort of foundation of humanism was this idea that you have to get back to the original text. It's not good enough. You know, the, these centuries of translation through Arabic and Latin is, have just corrupted the original words of these ancient geniuses. And uh, they became completely and utterly obsessed with getting hold of texts in the original Greek. And of course, that was very much to the detriment of, of you know, the Arabic scholars uh, and also the scholastic Latin sort of, you know, late medieval scholars who'd done so much work on these texts. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a sort of long, it's a long process. But I think, um, I think uh, translation is, is it, it is a complicated thing, but without it, we wouldn't have any of these texts. You know, if they hadn't translated them into different languages, then, then they wouldn't have survived. So it's very important. And for our American listeners, what you call Chinese whispers, which I think is the uh, British version of it, telephone is what we call oh, it. Oh, well, sorry. Yeah. Kids here. <laughs> and so, um, but yes, it, you know, the, the problem uh, that you've been describing, uh, it seems that these Renaissance era scholars are in some ways, it's very, it seems to me somewhat logical. Uh, or pragmatic from their standpoint. They, uh, they would approach it as, why do we have to go through this long chain of translation, where no doubt they would be aware of the possibility of error. Why not go back, you know, error as in mistranslation or omissions uh, from the original? Why not go back to the quote unquote original Greek? Um, so unintentionally cutting out some of the, at which as you've noted, are new additions or contributions of these Arabic uh, speaking scholars. So is there something lost uh, for these Renaissance era translators um, when they are trying to go to what they see or understand to be the original? Are they missing out on some added new knowledge? 
Well, I think they would have been if those, um, so the first printed editions of most of the texts that I was following were actually based on the, the versions which we'd followed all along through Arabic. And so I think, I think they, it, they would have done if they'd sort of completely ignored those versions, then, then yes, they would. But, but um many you know many of the ideas if you take the example of the hindu arabic numerals which had come from China, uh, from india and then were popular uh, well were written about in baghdad in the ninth century and then gradually made their way that uh, they're the numerals that we use now you know one to nine and the zero on which the entire of modern mathematics is based um that that idea came through, even though that was very much through the through the Arabic. You know, we wouldn't have had it if it wasn't for the Arabic tradition. So I think, I think in some, I, I think that the, the the really negative thing that happened was that the Arabic um, contribution was um, was written out of history effectively and ignored. And I think I think that was the the really negative effect. The ideas still came through, um, but um, that that's that's really the the the, the negative thing that happened um well you, you describe it as negative because uh, i want to make sure i understand what you mean by that you mean it's lamentable, lamentable. alas yeah. that we yeah. yeah yeah but it's not in other words it's not an intentional writing out of their contribution oh, i don't know I, I think i think in some cases it, it was quite intentional i think there was you know is that because of religious differences yeah. in other words a prejudice against uh, somebody who is an adherent to a different faith yeah absolutely and also you have to remember in some i mean in the case of constantine the african when he was um you know there was still um battles going on between the christian forces and the muslim forces so i mean it, 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 it's not that it wasn't you know understandable but it was a def there was a definite suspicion and a, a, a you know a sort of um the the two i mean look at the crusades that was all happening at, at the same time we were actually fighting each other so it's sort of understandable that there was this um this negative feeling from you know from Christians to Muslims, and definitely with um, with the zero, um, you know, because it came from the Muslim world, that it took centuries for it to be accepted, and people were quite suspicious, and they thought that perhaps it was demonic and it, it was dangerous because it had come from the Muslim world. Um, so I think you know you can understand it, it, it's not a laudable um, uh, attitude to have, but it is understandable um, in many ways that that Christians felt that way about um, Arabic scholarship. So one element of the um, late medieval, um, early Renaissance period that I found very intriguing were these people that, these individuals that are essentially manuscript hunters. Um, so can you explain some of these people? What do they do? What motivates them? Um, yeah, they're, they're the... the I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of the story. So there, there were there were many of them. I mean, this this the man Hunayn ibn Ishaq. He he's one of the, the sort of very early ones in Baghdad, and he just set off and travelled for years looking for manuscripts, and he taught himself fluent Greek so he could translate them, and um, and then. There, that there was um, uh, another one was called Gerard of Cremona. He was the, the greatest translator of um, scientific texts from Arabic into Latin, and he was the same. He he w was born in northern Italy. He was very interested in astronomy as a young man, and he learned everything he could in in northern Italy about astronomy. And then he realised he was going to have to go elsewhere because he literally read every book there was. And somebody told him that um, Toledo in northern Spain, which had just been reconquered by the Christians was full of um, Arabic books on 
on astronomy. <clears throat> and he'd heard about the Almagest and he wanted to see it for himself. So off he set into the unknown, you know, weeks of traveling by boat and I don't know donkey or walking or however you got there but you know travel in the in the medieval world was not um not speedy and it wasn't comfortable and it often wasn't safe either um and and then he got to Toledo and um of course, he got hold of a copy of the Almagest, but then it was in Arabic, so he couldn't read it. But he wasn't deterred by this. He just learned Arabic um, and then spent his, the rest of his life in Toledo um, translating all these um, scientific texts. I just think that that's incredible. I mean, that, that's, that's real dedication. And, um, um, you know, to go back to what I was saying about in the modern world, it's so easy for us to access information. And, and you know, imagine if you had to, if you wanted to study something, you had to, you know, travel for weeks and weeks into the unknown and, and then learn an entirely new language. And, you know, it just, it, it, it's just, it's just quite um, breathtaking, I think, the, um, the lengths that these men went to, to make sure that knowledge was passed down and, um it, it really is notable, the, the dedication, because their, their lives are dedicated to this over a period of years, decades, um, in some instances. And is, is it religious dedic dedication? In other words, do, are these men that believe that um, the truth of the world is reve revealed through other scholars? In other words, they are dedicated to a truth that they think God has revealed to the world? Um, or are these more secular motives? I don't know. I think that's. Do, I think. I think that's quite hard to say. But I think. Um, I don't. I. I don't think you could say they were doing it for religious reasons. I'm sure they were. You know, generally, most people seem to believe in God, and you know that was, God was very much a sort of integral part of everyday life, um, and being a Christian or being a Muslim. But um, no, I think they were motivated by. Um, in the same way that modern scientists are, are, are just, they just have this drive. They're just fascinated by subjects and they want to discover more and they want to, I think, I think it was a very personal and um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't know a lot about um, religion. I have never really studied the history of religion. So I'm always a little bit nervous when I have to um, get too involved and talk too much about it because I feel that, I don't know, perhaps I have a slightly negative view of religion. If you study the history of science, religion does not come out as being um, a particularly positive force over um, time. So I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Well, of course, some of the, the greatest scientists, uh, even into the well, well into the early modern period, up, up through the 17th and 18th century, the, they are religious. They're devout, but they believe they're revealing uh, the truth of the world, a deeper truth that's not uh, through their empiricism. Uh, that's been hidden, uh, not by God, but rather by the inability of people uh, to utilize reason. And so this is part of what the Enlightenment is. It's not merely secular. It's also a, a built upon um, religious motives of uh, some of these scientists. And so I was just curious if maybe that was perhaps motivating some of these manuscript hunters to seek out the truth that they thought um, yeah, I think had unfortunately I think, been hit. Yeah, mate, that, that I mean that is is totally likely, and I think you know it's difficult it's difficult for us to imagine now because we live in a world where it you know religion is so much a personal choice. You know, in in the medieval period and in um you know indeed in in medieval Islam, you know religion was just it was just all pervasive. I mean, you just not believing was. I mean, of course there are instances of people who were unbelievers, but it, it was it was not really an option it was it was not something that um 
that you know it would have been you, you would have been really really out on a limb if if you were prepared to say that you didn't believe in god i think god was just sort of in everything so of course if you no matter what you did whatever what job you did it would have been you know in the service of god in some way or other definitely one of the last areas that you cover is uh venice uh during its heyday and uh you talk about also printing presses so can you explain uh the role that Venice plays and why it's so important uh, for Western Europe? Um, Venice was um, one of the first great centers of printing. It wasn't where printing was um, developed in Europe. That was, um, it was, that was in Germany, but it spread very, very quickly. And that was because the, um, the rulers of Venice were um, extremely uh, wise and canny individuals. And they were very good at spotting um a, a you know a, a business opportunity and as soon as um you know news spread about this incredible new technology they basically invited printers from germany to come and they gave them you know licenses to build printing presses and produce books in venice and that was one of the reasons why venice became um such an big centre of printing so quickly. Um, and it was also the most important place for printing scientific texts in the early period, in the in the sort of first 100 years. Um, and um, it wasn't it wasn't really a centre of scientific inquiry in the same way that the other cities had been. But it was um, it was where all the texts which I followed throughout my book were printed for the first time around 1500, some of them a little bit before and some of them a little bit afterwards. So it was really important for that. And it was a great centre of scholarship. And of course, it was also a place where um, after the sack of Constantinople in 1453, scholars came bringing their ancient Greek texts with them. And so that added another whole dimension um, of uh, learning in the city because, um, you know, the humanists were able to access the texts in, in the original Greek as well. So that was another dimension. And of course, you end your account around 1500. Um, but nevertheless, it's striking that every now and then, there's still something new that's discovered. You mentioned uh, there was a French researcher who in 2005 discovered a treatise by Galen in regard to, um, the, or the title apparently is On the Avoidance of Grief. Uh, and this was at a monastery in Thessaloniki. And so this, it, there may still be texts out there yet to be discovered, probably authored by Galen. No <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I think, I mean, he, he wrote so much. I should think we'll probably still be finding texts written by him in hundreds of years' time. I don't know, but I, I think that's just so exciting. You know, that idea that, um, you know, we people have been studying Galen for um, almost 2,000 years, and yet still there's, there's stuff out there that, that's new and hasn't been discovered yet. And I, I just think that that's... You know, imagine being that researcher, how, how their heart must have just stopped when they realised it was a completely new treatise that hadn't been seen before. Um, so, yes, my advice is get, get you know, become a, a manuscript hunter. Go go and get get access to all those monastic libraries in Greece and um, that part of the world and see if you can come up with something new that hasn't been discovered before. So after you did this um, research and wrote this book, uh, what's your opinion on the whole of the preservation of knowledge as a project? Is it is it really, uh, granted, we've already noted how m the vast majority of knowledge that was lost from the ancient world, but um, even today, 
there's a concern with the pre- how knowledge is preserved. In other words, digital um, uh, capacity is immense. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot that's probably in, in some ways useless, uh, trivial. And so um, what survives, if you had asked a Roman in the you know, first century AD what would survive, um, they would probably have assumed a lot more would survive than actually did, alas. But um, do you see the project of preserving knowledge as a really fragile, delicate uh, project that requires robust individuals? Or is it uh, is this less of a problem today because of our digital and electronic capacity? Um, well, no, I think, I mean, it, it, it would seem that way on the face of it. But actually, I think digital information is... Is possibly even more fragile than um, material information. I mean, you know, it, it is. It would. It is possible that I don't know. And I mean, who knows what technology can do? But if if somehow the plug was pulled, or I don't know, some kind of. I mean, who knows? I, I'm not into science fiction, but I'm sure there's a lot of science fiction films out there that imagine this scenario. But you know, I think we could lose. I think we could lose all of the all of digital information if if you know, somebody was clever enough to come up with the algorithm or, I don't know, the internet suddenly disappeared. Um, but I think what, another interesting thing is that, you know, for, for a historian um, like me of the ancient and medieval world, it's always about, you know, you've got maybe three or four tiny fragments of information and then you have to try and build your story a, a, around it and try and kind of you know, recreate um, the reality. Um, but uh, historians of the age that we're living in now so you know people in hundreds of years time their problem is going to be the opposite they are going to be trawling through billions and billions and billions of pieces of information and I just wonder how you know that will throw up its own problems and um, issues and I think it'd be very interesting to see what they would be and how history you know the writing of history will change um, and you know whether that would I, I I don't how research would 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 how would you research you know uh, I th- I just think that's very interesting even in my own career you know since I started university twenty years ago you, you know the, your ability to search for information has been transformed by the by the internet and by you know all those um, academic journals are now on databases and you can literally type in the word that you're interested in and it will come up with every single you know in just a couple of seconds and I think that's 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 a really interesting um, aspect of um, scholarship is how it's changing and how it will change for historians of the future. The book is entitled The Map of Knowledge, A Thousand Year History of How Classical Ideas Were Lost and Found. We've been joined today by the author, Violet Muller. Violet, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. Thank you very much.